With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on this week's show, Bleem is back for the 21st century. A rare Sonic 1 prototype has been found. And we talk to the king of gaming documentaries, the gaming historian. The Retro Hour is brought to you each week by our friends at Bitmap Books and their latest book, Game Boy The Box Art Collection, is a celebration of the best cover artwork on the Game Boy and is available now from their website, bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 258, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show. Now, hopefully, um, you're not too tired, Ravi. I know you've been working quite hard over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I went for a mad one. I've got like five guests in a row. And this is amazing because we're not usually that far ahead, are we, Dan? <laughs> Especially not at this time of year. Um, but I think it's fair to say, I think we've hit the ground running in 2021 so far. Now, of course, we've already had uh, an episode all about Sinclair with Nigel Searle last week, um, a special about the uh, Die Hard trilogy with Simon Pick. That has got some lovely reaction. Um, and I saw we actually tried quite, quite high in the Apple podcast chart with that one as well. Yeah, they've really been doing well. And I was amazed by the reaction behind Die Hard trilogy. You know, a lot of people were saying that game was actually their kind of defining PlayStation game. That was the the game that made them get the system because um, I even reminded him, you know, the demo discs, the Die Hard trilogy was actually on one of the demo discs and you could play all three of the games on that demo, which was uh, absolutely amazing. Really got people engaged. Even though we did get high in the podcast shot, we still didn't beat bloody Gardener's Question Time, though. Ah, oh, we'll never beat Gardener's Question Time. <laughs> when Ravi sent that over, I saw it was number one still. I was like, for God's sake. <laughs> this is the year we're taking them down. We're taking uh, them. But to, uh, today, though, we've got a really good guest now. I know, Joe, you were particularly excited about this week's guest. You always love it when we get YouTubers on anyway, because I know when you're not working, you practically live on YouTube. Yeah, pretty much. Um this one I absolutely loved. We got Norman, the gaming historian, on, um, which Ravi bagged, which, you know, I suggested him a while ago. Ravi reached out to him and he said, I'm really sorry, I'm really busy at the moment. Um, but Ravi thought, I'll reach out again. It's after Christmas and stuff. And yeah, he came on and he was such a cool guy. Um, we, you know, I had to jump on this interview because like you say, I love the YouTubers. Um, and he was just really nice guy. And we just kind of caught up with him, you know, all the usual. Um, and then just spoke about the show and stuff. And he was like we spoke about his child and everything it's like oh it's not really very interesting but i i loved it i remember all mm. of it it was it was really interesting um you know i don't want to spoil it too much but you know he, he was born in japan and he you know grew, actually grew up over here for a couple of years as well like so it was really really interesting so um i'm looking forward to listening back to it now you've edited it and stuff and uh cut out me trying to say sony which was quite funny at one point <laughs> <laughs> it's you guys doing this interview isn't it so i can actually yeah. just sit back and listen to this one so that's going to be an enjoyable experience i'm going to be like a like a retro hour listener for this <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was a really good interview. I think you'll enjoy it um, because he actually does some of the 
the best quality video game documentaries on mm. YouTube. And interestingly, I mean, we talk about all sorts in this interview, you know, consoles that you grew up playing. We've got quite a bit about game collecting in there as well. And he was actually an employee at GameStop. So yeah. we talked quite a bit about that, that that I really enjoyed and kind of his perspective on where game stores are going. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. We didn't we didn't know that when we did the questions beforehand. We had no idea because obviously there was nothing on the internet about that. So that was really interesting. Um, and what I also loved as well is he's not, he obviously he is a typical YouTuber, but he doesn't put out an episode every day or every week. He, he, t- he takes his time with his episodes. He only did like three or four last year, but each one's got over like a million hits. And it was really interesting to talk to him about that and kind of get his thoughts on YouTube and stuff. Because only that day we were saying like how some YouTubers mm-hmm. have to do it every single day to get as big as he is because of, I mean, he's, he's closing in on a million subscribers at the moment. And that was like, like that's his dream and stuff. And he's managed to do it with taking his time, which I think is really cool. And you know, you call, you call yourself the gaming historian and it's like, are you going to become established in that area? Are you going to become the kind of authority for gaming? Ooh, and don't, don't, no spoilers. Oh no, I haven't heard this. So, so let's see. Well, I think the difference between him and a lot of kind of YouTubers who do video game documentaries is he's actually, he studied history and he's actually doing a master's degree in history mm. at there the we moment go. as well. So yeah, wow. we kind of talk yeah. about how he uses, you know, his, his academic experience to research his videos and kind of where they cross over. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. Norman Caruso, the gaming historian, is going to be our special guest and he'll be coming up in around 20 minutes from now. Now, it's been a good 12 months or so actually for prototypes. We had all that Nintendo stuff that we talked about last year. There's obviously the uh, Sonic 3 prototype that we spoke about back in like, October, November last year. But now something that's been really wanted by the Sonic community, but actually quite hard to find, has emerged, and this is a prototype of Sonic the Hedgehog 1 on the Mega Drive. Yeah, this is really cool. So this was only discovered a couple of days ago by Hidden Palace, um, who are a website, you know, who specialise in, you know, uploading prototypes, especially Sonic, obviously with the name Hidden Palace as well. Um, But they do lots of other games like Crash Bandicoot and stuff like that. But yeah, this is really cool. They live-streamed um, an hour-long uh, playthrough of the game, and you know it highlights a lot of the differences in there. Um, many of them are sound effects, the things that I noticed. But Dan, you actually said you noticed a lot more quite early on in the video. Yeah, well, I think you know when you first watch it, because um, you can watch it back. Mm. They published it all on YouTube, yeah. and um, I'll put a link to the article on Game Rants in our show notes. Um, and when it starts, I mean, some of the levels are actually named differently. Mm. Um, like you've got Spring Yard Zone and Scrap Brain Zone that are changed to Sparkling Zone and Clockwork Zone okay. in the demo. Uh, but as soon as it starts in Green Hill Zone, you get about 10, 20 seconds into it. And Sonic kind of jumps on what looks a bit like, and, and I don't ever remember seeing this in the in the full game, um, it looks a bit like an Amiga Boing Ball. You know, that kind of checkered yeah, ball. I noticed that it's the checkered ball that Dr. Robotnik uses as the first yeah. boss. He swings it. Um, but yeah, he's like pushing it around, isn't he? Uh, yeah. And he's like, dude, I, I was like, what, what's this about? And he's like standing on it and like running on it and stuff. So obviously something they were probably playing with, you know, like a mechanic of putting in the game, maybe to smash through walls or something like that. But obviously they, they got rid of it in the end, but yeah, I, I thought that was really strange. It's not something they revisited obviously in any of the later ones. I've not played Sonic Mania, so maybe it's in there, but hmm. Like, yeah, there's obviously some some ideas in there which they just took out. Um, One thing that was interesting, I was like, what is that noise like? There was like a a whirring noise in the background (laughs) loads. And then I read the article and apparently it's waterfall sound effects for the waterfall (laughs) in the background. So I'm glad they took that out because it's really distracting. 
It didn't actually sound much like war. I mean, it just kind of starts and stops. Yeah, it? it's, it's just kind like of like, like, like noise, isn't it? So like TV static. Yeah, and then they've got, you know, there is, as you look through this, I mean, you, you watch the whole thing, and I'm sure if you're a, a hardcore Sonic fan, you'll probably spot a lot more differences than I did. Um, there are like a lot of UFOs that mm. appear at the beginning of Marble Hill Zone. Um, and then Starlight Zone, the lower levels on that, they've got, you know, the, the buildings look a lot more run down, and it's kind of a lot of urban decay there as well. So it, it is interesting just to see, because I mean, <laughs> amazingly, Sonic the Hedgehog is 30 years old this year. You know, it came out back in 1991. Which oh, blows God. my mind. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> but then, I mean, you know, the fact that they're actually, you can see a little bit of that game in development and kind mm. of what they decided to leave in and take out and change, which I always find fascinating. And they kind of talk a bit about how they they got hold of this as well, because like you said, I mean, Hidden Palace, they specialise in getting these kind of prototypes and putting them out there. And when they got the Sonic 3 prototype last year, they were like talking about how they'd love to get an original Sonic the Hedgehog prototype, mm. but... No one got in touch with them for months, but then this guy called Buckaroo, it turns out, actually had a legitimate Sonic the One Sonic One prototype. He dumped it and then he sent it off to them on New Year's Eve to play. So uh, it's finally out there, and I think you know, I imagine. I know you haven't watched the whole thing yet, Joe, but just as a Sonic fan, kind of getting that behind the scenes glimpse of how the game could have been. Yeah, it's really just interesting. interesting. What I'm really interested in is I want to know who Buckaroo is, how he got a hold of that. Did yeah. he work on the game? Did he know somebody worked on the game? Do you know what I mean? Did he work for Sega at some point and just, you know, he just found it or something? It'd be really interesting, you know, or it turns out he's got like a prototype cartridge or something. I love that kind of stuff. But, you know, <laughs> he's probably remaining anonymous because he doesn't want to get into trouble with Sega. And I reckon these there's going to be lots of builds of this. Um, yeah. Like fans may oh, yeah. use the assets and stuff or kind of like recreate it or, or create some mad hybrid but yeah, knowing yeah. the Sonic community, there's going to no, be loads of versions of this coming I know out, a lot of it? people who, you know, put these things on cartridge and sell them on Instagram and stuff. So I'm probably going to see this coming up, you know, Sonic Prototype 1 with, you know, its own box art and everything on cartridge, no doubt soon. So I always find it really interesting to see beaters as well, mm. um, because I, I spoke about this on our After Hours podcast. I got my hands on a, a Sinclair QL um, last year. Uh, which is, you know, obviously we talked about that with Nigel um, when we did the Sinclair episode a couple of weeks ago. It was kind of Sinclair's, one of their biggest flops. Mm. Uh, meant to be a business machine, but um, the, the Bandersnatch game from Imagine Software, that obviously the Charlie Brooker Black Mirror episode was based on. Um, we've done several episodes about that. We did one with John, John Gibson actually last year too. Um, it turned out they were actually um, working on releasing Bandersnatch on the Sinclair QL. And I was just kind of looking around a few forums the other day because I found, you know, an article about kind of what the Charlie Brooker episode was based on. And I didn't realise actually that there was um, leaked kind of a, a couple of prototypes of Bandersnatch on the QL that this guy apparently found when he just bought like a, a massive batch of Sinclair QL micro drives. And in there, no idea how, but it turned out there was a Bandersnatch prototype and apparently it looks quite legitimate. So, um, you know, I'm looking at trying to try that out on my Sinclair QL. So I think especially when you get really famous games like Bandersnatch or Sonic, I, I just find it so interesting to see kind of, you know, what could have been. It's, it's, it's really interesting. That's dope. <laughs> so if I get it working, I'll let you guys know. Now, emulation is something, of course, that we tend to cover every episode at the moment. And a system that I'm actually quite amazed doesn't have a decent emulator until now is the original Xbox. Because when you think of that machine, and that was essentially just a kind of late 90s, early 2000s Pentium 3-based PC, but there hasn't really been a decent emulator 
to play original Xbox games on your PC until now. I'd, I'd say hold off on that because this is only release version 0.5. So semi-decent emulator, mm. <laughs> let's say. But yeah, you're right. It's interesting because it was on the cell architecture, wasn't it? And um, maybe that kind of affected it somehow. But um, this is XMU and it's XMU 0.5. And what they've done is they've released a game showcase. So they said there's more kind of compatibility with the Xbox at the moment. Um, it's interesting. This is based on SDL. So it's an actual SDL port and it's a open source emulator as well. So people were invited to add to the project. So more people that get involved, the better it is. So it's a major milestone in the project. It, it has major graphics improvements, um, fixes that uh, fix the BIOS compatibility, uh, interface and preliminary sound support's been added. Now, what they've done is they've also enabled um, virtual game pads. So you can collect four controllers at the same time, uh, just like on a real Xbox, which is really interesting, but not all the good games are working. So if you look <laughs> at this um, kind of little compilation they've done of games, they're not like the the big killer titles. You know, you haven't got Halo on there. Um, you've got like Dance Dance, Revolution, Ultra Mix 4, Sonic Riders. You know, all of these games are kind of not the main selling Xbox ones, but the ones that they are showing seem to be running well. I'm just hoping well, once they hit version one, there's going to be more support for other titles because oh, I just want to play Full Spectrum Warrior or like something like that or or even just like, I know you can play Halo on your PC, but um, having it in that Xbox environment is something different, isn't it? They have got Joe's favourite game on there though, um, Dead or Alive Extreme Beach Volleyball. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The you number know what? one <laughs> selling. Whenever you say that, we've got Joe's favorite game. I always, I always think to myself, here we go. What is, and I always think it's actually going to be something I love. Like I thought you were going to say Ninja Gaiden or something. And it's always like dead or alive or something. Like I'm some sort of perv. Everyone I mean, don't get me wrong. Game. I love that game. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I mean... It- and they do look good in this video as well. I mean, they look like... I've got an original Xbox, admittedly. I haven't played it for a good few years. Um, but I don't remember them looking quite as good as they do in this video. So it looks like there is some kind of upscaling and kind of smoothing going on there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's doing a lot of, lot of stuff, but um, only with these specific titles at the moment. And uh, yeah, sorry, it was a, a kind of weird Pentium-free custom hybrid cpu not a cell one the cell one's coming right. later but that may be the problem that it is a kind of custom hybrid it's not it's not you know just a straight pc that you could kind You'd of imagine pull. though you know you know if it's kind of pentium 3 based and i think you know that from from memory i think the graphics chip is like an nvidia chip and you know you had a hard disk in there it just, i mean it, it might be a case of no one's really thought it was maybe worth doing one. I don't know. You'd think that'd be easier than you know, like a Dreamcast emulator or N64 or something like that. It might just be... I mean, they do mention in this article on Kotaku that a lot of the games that came out on the original Xbox were cross-platform and generally people will kind of lean towards the PS2 versions. It might just be that, you know, that's really been a concentrated effort to get an original Xbox emulator up and running till now, maybe. Yeah, and I, I don't know if they'll be able to shove this into the 360 as well and have 
stuff like the Xbox Arcade supported, which could be really interesting. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's good to see and, uh, you know, bring on the Xbox emulation. I've, I've always loved that system. It's cool that Microsoft are kind of leaving them alone as well, because obviously they're kind of pushing the, the back of, backwards compatibility of the, the Xbox now, aren't they, that it can play all the classic games and stuff. So it's good that they haven't had a, a takedown did so you, far. Did you see um, <laughs> one feature that they've kept in all of the Xboxes is network play. It's exactly the same. And MVG did a, Modern Vintage Gamer did a fantastic video recently where he had every generation of the Xbox playing the same title all networked up at the same time. And that was pretty amazing to see that kind of span of all the Xbox machines, all the different resolutions, the the kind of graphics effects, but they were all synchronized and the sync was like still really good because you could just system link them all. See, the original Xbox as well, I mean, a friend of mine had that back in the day. That was kind of my era when I I wasn't majorly into video games. I kind of took a bit of a break from it for a few years. But I remember my flatmate Paul, I mean, he used to play like FIFA and Halo 2 and all that on there. So I would sit down and, you know, kind of do couch gaming with him back then. Um, But it always did seem like, I know the PS2 was a much more popular machine, but it felt like, you know, the, the Xbox was looking back kind of the powerhouse of that generation. It always seemed like the rich kid one for me. I only had one friend mm. with an Xbox. Everybody else had PS2 or GameCube, you know, and I remember going to school after playing it with that lad and like everybody was like, what was the controller like? And I just, I remember just ripping the Xbox. But, you know, I, I, it's got a special place in my heart these days just because I love 360 and Xbox One. But yeah, it, it, interesting to see, you know, some of those games, which, you know, you can't get now and stuff like that. You know, what? I can't remember the name of the one that Ravi just said, but yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that's the thing. Is I think that system, when it came out, I remember a lot of people being quite sceptical that, you know, Microsoft mm. were making a video games console, like, you know, the probably the most uncool company in the world yeah. <laughs> at the time. It's like the whole, the first ever one sold, like Bill Gates served the guy on the till, yeah. and it's just like, it's just <laughs> awkward, do you, do you know what I mean? That's like an accountant's firm coming up with a games console or something, isn't it? It's yeah. Like, but, you know, fair play to them, managed to turn it around. Actually, we are going to be doing um, an episode, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, all about the original Xbox, if you're a fan of that. So uh, make sure you keep listening to the podcast. And uh, another thing that we've covered in the past that is actually back, and now I know you're a big fan of this, Ravi, Bleem has made a return. Now, I'm sure a lot of people know, but kind of explain what the original Bleem was for people that might not be familiar with it. Bleem was an amazing piece of software, and I'm surprised they still want to use the name because um, (laughs) uh, it it got taken off the shelves, basically, um, because they lost a court case. Uh, What it was, was it was a piece of software which enabled you to play games, PlayStation games, on the PC but also enabled you to play them on the Dreamcast. And what it offered was it offered like support for the graphics card. So you could play PlayStation titles in like higher resolutions with the graphics cards, but also you could uh, play some stuff on the Dreamcast and uh, the Dreamcast versions were actually a little bit nicer. So um, I think they got done on the screenshots because we had Randy Linden on uh, who talked about Bleem and uh, yeah, he was selling as, telling us that putting screenshots on the back um, was a a real problem. But um, that kind of got removed, but it seems to be coming back now. So the name has been sold on. Um, 
by the former president uh, to Pico Interactive. And now, they're a company who kind of buy everything, aren't they, Pico? We've talked about them before. I mean, I'm looking at their, their page here. They've got, you know, IPs from Accolade, uh, GT Interactive, Hasbro, uh, Microprose, Ocean Software, Spectrum, Holobyte. They kind of specialise in that kind of buy, buying old IPs say, and resurrecting Pico, them. Pico are the ones that do the, all the, like, the children's game consoles, like learning game consoles and stuff like that, and they, they whack all these IPs on there, but it's actually just like a counting game. Is that, um, is that right? Okay. I think it, it could. It could. I mean, yeah. I'm not. I'm not exactly. I know they did. The, they do like multi carts for the Super Nintendos and stuff yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, it could be the same company, but yeah, they, they kind of do that. You know, bringing back kind of brands and mm. software from the dead. Uh, but this time they're going to be turning this into uh, an online store. Oh yeah. God, we don't need another bloody online store. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sounds like it's got a little bit of difference though. Well, so uh, it's a web web based one. And uh, it's offering the ability to be a kind of a wrapper uh, for ROMs and titles, which is interesting. Yeah, they're saying that they're going to get games which haven't been published on Steam. Like, the idea is it's going to be kind of like, they don't say retro games, but if I list off the consoles they're grabbing, they're going to be games that you can't get anywhere else. Um, So they're saying they're going to be looking at, you know, Nintendo Entertainment System games, SNES, Mega Drive, Game Boy, TurboGrafx-16 and PS1 games, but they're meant to be mm. games that we haven't been able to get, you know, officially before, um, which is which is cool, but, you know, that's, that seems like a lot of work. They're going to have to go out there to all these publishers and stuff, you know, you know, to grab these games. I mean, I can't even think of a game off the top of my head right now that has never been re-released, but, like, you know... Well, it, it depends whether they're going to do classic games or if it's going to be... I mean, the way I kind of read this press release... Um, that's actually on gamespress.com, mm. is it kind of sounds to me like they're going to be a service where indie games can also get a wider release. Okay. So say, say you release like a, a game for the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo that isn't anywhere else. Yeah. This will give them a way to publish it to the big wide world, essentially. So it kind of sounds a bit like the way... Um, GOG works, you know, good old games. When you buy like an old game on there, it kind of comes with like a, a DOS box kind of wrapper and it runs on like a modern Windows machine. Okay. So it doesn't need any setting up. You double click it and it just launches in an emulator, full screen, you can play it. Yeah. So the way it kind of reads to me is they're going to go to indie developers who are making NES games, Mega Drive games. Oh, okay. And they're going to give them a way to essentially to sell these on a website where you can ah. double click them and run them on a PC. So like Paprika, pap- whatever it's called, what we were talking Paprium, about. Paprika, yeah. That's <laughs> paprika. Exactly. Paprika. Um, leave that in. That, you know, give people a chuckle. But yeah, Paprium. My, my favourite flavour of Pringles. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, okay. So I, 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 I interpreted it as they were going to go out to these old developers and stuff and whack these games on but that makes more sense from Hmm. the way you've interpreted and and interestingly as well we covered this recently there was a thing called bleem sync as well which was um basically for the playstation classic and it was to enable you to modify the playstation classic and interestingly they've just changed their name of the project to project eris so maybe they're a bit worried about the, the 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 bleem name and um the kind of, uh, uh, you know, Pico owning it now. I know what you mean. It's kind of got some connotations, I guess, for, particularly for retailers, it might be a little bit wary of using that name. But I think for the audience they're going for, you know, particularly retro gaming fans, the Bleem name does kind of resonate with us. You know, it kind of brings back fondness, I think. Oh, and they're using the old Bleem logo. Like, yeah. they're not updating it or anything. It's, it's like the proper old school, you know, just Bleem with a big explanation mark. 
And I think that's cool. I mean, they're also talking in the press release as well that it might allow, you know, arcade machine manufacturers and, uh, you know, companies that are making modern kind of emulation boxes to have legal libraries of games ready to play straight out the box as well. So, yeah, there is a lot of uses for it, I think. So I love the fact that it's going to be a website as well because, you know, buying stuff off Steam, I hate the fact that I've got to, because I don't use it every day. Every time I open it, I've got to put my password in. It's got to do an update again and everything. Sometimes it's a lot simpler just to go onto a website to download stuff, isn't it? There's a thing called SteamDB. You need this mm. in your life. What it does is it, it means you can integrate all your stores. So if you've got GOG, if you've got all the other other kind of systems, um, you can run this onto Steam and it will import all of the games and then you just run it through Steam. So I've been doing that recently because there's so many stores out there. It's ridiculous. Yeah. That's the thing. We don't need yet another thing to install on our PCs, do we? So uh, <laughs> nice. It's just going to be a website, I think. So we'll keep an eye on that. It's nice to have the Bleem name back, and I think it does make sense for this project. So if you want to read more about that, I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, the next story is from friend of the show, Asobi Tech, Quang. He's been making the headlines with a Game Boy game that apparently was 21 years in the making. Yeah, this is really cool. So... um Essentially, Quang um, started making this game, Super Jetpack uh, DX, in 1999. Um, you know, it was a, a essentially a homebrew port of Jetpack. Um, hmm. And he started making it and everything. I, I'm not too sure what he did for a living or anything like that, um, but there was a story behind it. I think he entered a competition with coding and stuff like that, and he got a job working on some games, and then he kind of and he dropped out of uni, and he did some game, you know, he worked for a game company, and then he kind of moved on with his life um, and got another career. But um, due to COVID, essentially, he got made redundant last year. Um, but rather than kind of like moping about or anything, he just thought, well, let me pursue this dream of becoming a game developer. Um, and essentially, he digged out all the old code and everything he'd been, you know, working on for Super Jetpack DX. Um, and now the game, you know, it's done its first run. It's just been released um, and it looks it looks awesome. Um, from what I understand, it's selling. Um, you get the physical game on Game Boy Color, um, which is really cool. Um, I think the Game Boy Color is a really underrated uh, console myself. Mm. Um, but he's done a full release for the game. You get all the box art, instruction manual and everything. That's 40 quid. Um, or you can just get the cartridge for 25 quid. But yeah, I think that's really cool. You know, like like I say, it's taken 21 years, but I think it's awesome that he's just thought, you know what, I'm going to get back into that and I'm I'm going to become a game game developer. Well, he obviously did um, Mau Mau Castle yeah. that we covered um, a couple of years ago. So, uh, you know, he's kind of been back into game development okay. for a good few years. Um, and yeah, I've still got memories of playing that. I think with you actually, Joe, after about 10 pints at Play Expo after party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, vague memories, I must admit. But yeah, that was a great game. And obviously, I, I imagine that was quite a big vote of confidence. You know, the retro community just really, really fell in mm. love with that game. Um, but kind of having something that's been on the shelf for so long and dedicating your spare time to finally getting it out there. Because, you know, 21 years, <laughs> if you've got something that's been kind of at the back of your mind for that long, that must be such a good feeling when it's finally out there. Oh, yeah, 100%. And it seems really reasonable as well. So he's got like £10 for the ROM download, mm. 25 for... The cartridge, which itself twenty five is wicked, and like you said, with everything, the box, the manual, and all that, it's only forty quid. So I think mm. this is a, a really reasonable price for one of these kind of new release titles. 
And it does seem like, you know, there's been so many new Game Boy projects that we've been talking about recently. You, you kind of get that, you know, you get to a certain point where I don't know whether enough time has passed or it's kind of a an anniversary or something, but suddenly it seems like a lot of the retro community just kind of turned their attention to a certain system. And all of a sudden you get like, you know, like tens of games coming out for like a certain machine. So yeah, it does seem like the Game Boy is kind of on fire yeah, at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say a couple of years ago, it was the Dreamcast. Yeah. And we were always talking about a new Dreamcast game, you know, it was... I forget what, I think it might have been 2019. There was like 25 games released on the Dreamcast. Yeah. But yeah, it does feel like the Game Boy Color and the Game Boy is getting some love recently. Yeah, handheld system when we're all stuck indoors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> you take it out of the garden. So uh, now before we get into our interviews this week with the gaming historian, obviously CX is going on right now, um, virtually this year. But there have been some interesting things to come out of CS this year, including something that will appeal if you're a fan of classic board games. Yeah, I thought this was really, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this. So this is coming from Arcade One Up, um, who I love, you know, we've spoke about them a few times. They do the, you know, the three three quarter scale arcade machines. But this is the Infinity Game Table. Um, which is coming out next month and it was actually a kickstarter last year and they had a goal of a million dollars and they hit it but yeah essentially this is a tabletop board digital board game but to me it just looks like a giant ipad like a giant tablet (laughs) uh, from the video because it's got all the apps on there and everything and you know there's a 24 inch version and a 32 inch version um but yeah it just looks like a smart tv with legs to me <laughs> well, well looking at it it looks like the um do you remember microsoft did these surface tables early on that were these the original ones yeah that the, with these huge kind of tables well this looks like it's a a, a much more cheaper device mm. um it, it will make a good gaming table anyway for playing board games but um it, it's a big touchscreen ipad essentially yeah, but the thing I like about it is, I think it's ideal for lockdown. Like, if you're there and you're locked in the house with people and you just want to play some games, um, there's a big choice here. You can just load it up, and knowing One Up Arcade as well, it's not going to be massively expensive. Like, looking it's here, six hundred dollars. Six hundred dollars, uh, yeah, maybe twenty-four. Well, okay, you, you compare that. You remember that that Microsoft um, Surface, the original one that came out in two thousand seven. How much was that? It was really the same kind of thing. That was ten thousand dollars. Okay, so this is a lot more affordable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Technology's come on a long way in the last. And, and the thing about it is, as well, if you don't have your friends there, you can get them with another table as well at theirs. Yeah, it's online, and then you it? can do it online, which is pretty amazing. So, like, if you are a tabletop gamer or a, a kind of board gamer then you could just force your mates to buy one of these you'll be missing out <laughs> and then you can all kind of just sit there and play and it's got a lot of the kind of traditional games but i guess it's also gonna have you know further games coming on you'll get lots of brands and uh lots of new boards and stuff like at the moment they're doing a lot of testing with monopoly and battleships and stuff like that what I, I was going to say, what I actually like is they have actually got the proper IPs. They have actually got Monopoly, you know, Battleship, Snakes and Ladders. They're not called like, you know, sna- Snakes and Tunnels and stuff like that, yeah. like knockoff <laughs> ones. You know, it's all legit. It's, you know, from a trusted company and stuff. So it's pretty cool. But I, I, I mean, I don't think I'm sold. I do like, I like board games. I like playing board games with family and stuff. Not obviously not done, really done that in about a year now, but 
it's cool you know the dice are digital and stuff like that so you just like tap them and they do it but i think you kind of lose the feel for it a little bit you know the whole point of a board game is it's it's on a board but i can see the appeal to a lot of people it's not a mess it's just a screen i don't know if the legs fold away or anything like that but that'd be pretty cool you know if the legs fold away and you can just kind of tuck it down the side of the couch or something and you know, it looks like it, it would make a nice coffee table anyway. Yeah, it makes a nice <laughs> coffee table. And I'm sure people are going to have Doom running on it, you know, next month when it comes out. <laughs> and, the, and the thing is as well, you could probably mount it on your wall. You don't yeah. even need to have it on the floor. And uh, Not the most comfortable way of play, playing board games, though, on the wall. Imagine if you were like, if you were like, uh, you know, you can't visit your gran or anything. So you just put one of these in the nursing home and you're like, right, gran, we're going to have a game of operation. <laughs> nice. You know, that would be really good fun. And then she could play Game of Life with her mates. And you know what I mean? It's, uh, it seems like an ideal kind of lockdown uh, thing. I don't know how relevant it will be after that. But um, it's still, still quite, quite a good prize for what it is. I think it looks like a really good party machine. Um, yeah. Obviously, the, the timing for that is, you know, not great at the moment. But yeah, I don't know if you guys are the same. I've bought like kind of board games on, you know, my Switch and stuff like that. You know, I've got Monopoly on there and they never really play that well with a controller, especially like, you know, if I'm at my mum's place and like I want to play with my relatives and stuff, they don't really get it. I've got to control it all the time. You know, I've got to sit there with the controller. But yeah, something like y- y- this. your mum's going, roll it, roll it for me, roll it. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand pressing that X button, roll it for me. <laughs> yeah, what, are all, what do all these buttons do? You know, yeah. it's not friendly to people that are not, normal normally gamers um but also i mean we were playing me and samantha over christmas i got the just kind of past the time i got I got the uh, version of who wants to be a millionaire <laughs> on the nintendo switch 35 pounds it was and it was shockingly bad oh, really yeah. really bad i still play the playstation one of that <laughs> oh, the playstation version is way better you know i said to her, actually i should just download that and set the ps1 up in the living room um but i think you know for something like this i, I could imagine like you know say Joe, you and Charlie come around one night and we're having a few drinks and we want to sit down and play Monopoly rather than getting the board game out of the attic and all that. I could see us all sitting around something like this. Yeah, I could definitely see us using it and I could definitely see it in like your house, but I just, I couldn't, I don't think I'd be able to convince, you know, Charlie to buy one. I don't think I could definitely convince my mum to play with it. Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. I, I could just imagine one of, one of you guys raging and just like smashing the whole table, <laughs> <laughs> like slamming your fist down. <laughs> or or mu- much more likely me or Dan reaching across and knocking our drink over or something. Yeah. <laughs> that would 100% yeah. happen. Yeah, but, it, um, it's got to have some kind of waterproofness on the top of there, hasn't it? Or some kind of like iPhone style seal. Where it's just like spill one drink and it all just goes into the circuit board and blows up, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I do actually really want one though. I don't know whether it just kind of goes back to that original Microsoft Surface. I mean, you know, you remember it as well, Ravi. That was kind of, you know, 2007. That was when the first iPhone came out. And you probably remember those demos where you like, you know, a guy was putting his finger on the screen and the water rippled. And you know, when I saw that, I remember thinking, wow, that looks so cool. But obviously, at ten thousand dollars, I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to own one of those. So, kind of having something now where I imagine the technology now, you know, touchscreens have come on a hell of a long way in the last decade. Yeah, this is like I imagine it's going to be better. This is like an entry point, and like yeah. I, I've seen other things like this. So, I've seen uh, one which is absolutely amazing, which is a pinball machine one, uh, where you get the tables and you just project the new pinball table onto it, and yeah. it's slanted. But then you can also get classic ones like the Amiga Pinball Dreams or whatever, and put those pinball tables on there. So that adds a new kind of functionality. So I think this is, yeah, it's 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 basic, it's simple, but uh, it's an entry point. You know, it, it starts a, 
a market of these kind of digital tabletop devices. Right, coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk to Norman Caruso, the gaming historian, talking about his really high-quality video game documentaries on YouTube. Before that, tomorrow, um, we're going to be recording the next episode of the Retro Hour After Hours podcast. And this one, I think, is going to be a bit tricky. We're going to be doing our top five favourite games of all time. I've been thinking about oh, this. How are we going to do this? I've been thinking about this all week. I'm just like, oh my God. Like, I'm, I, It's like it's some sort of commitment. Like, Once I've committed to it, once I've said it, that's it forever. I can never change my mind again. Well, that, that's it. It's recorded. I know, it's, I know. it's a permanent record. Mind change every week. Yeah, it's so hard. But yeah, it'll be good. Are we guessing each other's or are we just going to talk about it? Have we decided? We could, I think let's have a go guessing each other's. Yeah, oh, that, that, that was God. fun on the console one that we did. Um, I, I Last night, I was lying in bed um, at around... I woke up randomly at like one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't get back to sleep. And I was lying there thinking, oh, well, I'll have to think about these games now. So I think I was lying there till about 4 a.m. It's kind of going over them in my head. <laughs> so I should have wrote them down because I've forgotten what they Number were. one, Rise of the Robots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Number two. Number two, Sleepwalker. Rise two. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is going to be a really good one. And, of course, um, the After Hours podcast is exclusive to our patrons as a big thank you for supporting this show. And we had our patrons hang out as well. There's another one of those coming up in a couple of weeks' time. We do those once a month. You also get the show early, you know, some weeks. We also give you an ad-free episode. Really, though, the idea of our patron is you can just support this podcast. Anything that we get from our patron, we put it all into a big pot, and then when we need money for things, you know, new equipment, events that we're doing, that kind of thing, hosting, websites, anything like that, that money in patron pays for that stuff. So it means that we haven't got to pay for this podcast out of our own pocket. So that is massively appreciated. And of course, for backing us on Patreon, not only will you be supporting the show, you'll also get a mention in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you so much to Tim Harap, Wilbur and McBain, Full Install, Shane Dowling, and Sam Rhymes who all made donations into the running of the show. That is massively appreciated. And if you'd like to do the same, you can find it on our website at theretrohour.com. Also, we've got a, a Discord as well that, that we haven't really talked about for a while, but that's still quite active, isn't it? We chat in there pretty much every day. Yeah, yeah, the Discord's going well. And, you know, the best thing about the Discord is we've got show suggestions as well. So if there's someone you'd love to see as a guest... Um, then pop on Discord, pop it into the show suggestions channel. We've also got uh, IRC link there as well. So it actually links to old school internet relay chat. So you can chat with some people on our Merc channel, which is uh, totally insane. But I had really good fun programming that. And we have text adventures as well. So you can kind of choose your own adventure and actually play that in Discord on the move, which is pretty mad. The IRC bridge is brilliant. That essentially links old-school IRC clients to Discord. Yeah, and it's connected to my PC, so every time I turn off my PC, it's like, the IRC bot has logged in. (laughs) And yeah, everybody can see when I'm turning it on and off. I might join on my Atari ST. Yeah, do it, do it. (laughs) (laughs) So if you'd like to join us on there, you'll find all the details on our website as well. So we'll have more news for your next Friday show. And next, we're going to be talking to Norman Caruso, the gaming historian, coming up on the Retro Hour podcast. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now today we're going to be joined by a gaming historian who does some of the highest quality video game documentaries on YouTube and uh, we're going to get into all that but first of all let's welcome on our guest this week the fantastic Norman Caruso. Hello Norman. Hey Dan, hey Joe, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now uh, before we get into the kind of things you've been covering on your fantastic YouTube channel in just a bit, I mean we always like to kind of find out your your gaming chops, you know, and what kind of your history is with video games. Do you remember what initially got you into gaming then and your kind of earliest experiences and memories? Well, let me think. Um, my grandfather was really into computers and video games. Um, he was kind of a hobbyist techie, and he gave me and my brother an old IBM PC. He would always buy the newest, latest, and greatest, and he would give us his old computer. So he gave us his old IBM PC, and he gave us... Uh, Castle Wolfenstein and hmm. a game called Digger. Uh, it was like made by a Canadian company. It was it was like a uh, almost like a Dig Dug ripoff. But uh, we, I was maybe four, five years old. My brother was eight or nine. So us playing Castle Wolfenstein was. I don't know if we were too young for that, but we really enjoyed it. <laughs> Um, so that was my, er that's probably my earliest memory with video games. And then of course my brother had the Nintendo entertainment system and it just kind of took off from there, I guess. That's awesome. Now I could be completely wrong here from what you've just said, but I read online that you were actually born in Japan. Is there a story there? Did you grow up at all in Japan or is that complete, you know, gobbledygook online? It is true. I was born in Japan. It's not a very interesting story. My father was in the U S Navy. He was stationed in Japan. And that's where I was born. I don't oh, remember okay. a thing about it. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> I, enough. <laughs> yeah, we, my family moved when I was two years old, so I, I have no memory of Japan. But it's really just something cool I can tell people. I can say, I was born in Japan, oh, even though it was, on, it was on a U.S. military base. But. It's still cool. Uh, it's yeah, still it's very cool. <laughs> even being born on a U.S. Military, military base is more cool than uh, me still being in the city I was born in. So, <laughs> Well, and actually... Being that you guys are from the UK, I lived in Scotland as a kid. Oh wow! Uh, from between five and eight years old, and I remember a lot about that, and I loved it. So, you know, being in the military, you know, had its perks. You know, growing up in a military family because I got to travel the world a lot, so it was fun. I mean, what memories have you got of your time in the UK? Then, I mean, do you have many like, gaming memories, or did you visit arcades and stuff when you were here? Not not so much arcades. We lived on the on the military base, and every it was almost it was kind of like a time warp. The military base took a little while to get the latest and greatest stuff. Uh, so, like movies would come out like months after uh, they actually came out back in the United States. So, uh, the same thing with with the video games. So we 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 were still playing a lot of Nintendo Entertainment System even between like 1992 1995. Uh, but I do remember Sega was massively popular outside of the military base. Everybody wanted a, a Mega Drive. So uh, you mentioned that the Nintendo Entertainment System was probably, it was your older brother's, probably your first gaming console, which was our next question. But what kind of games take you back to your childhood the most? Oh, man. Um, well, definitely for the Nintendo Ent Entertainment System, prob uh, Dr. Mario probably is the game I, I grew up with the most, mainly because... My mom loved that game so much, and she would always want to play with us. Uh, we would, you know, it had the two-player competition, and uh, so we would play that all the time. That's probably the game that that makes me think of growing up the most. I mean, gaming's obviously been 
a big part of your life. I mean, when you were a kid, did you ever think that you wanted to work in the video games industry? Did you have any aspirations to do that when you grew up? Uh, no, actually, I, I mean, it was it was just something fun that that me and my friends and my my brother and sister would do. I when um when I got a little older in my teenage years, I really got into like uh building websites and stuff and so I did build some like fan websites for like Final Fantasy because I was really into Final Fantasy at the time. <laughs> um I think it was called Final Fantasy Generations or something like that. Yeah. Um but I never imagined that I would be like I'm going to make a video game. Um I don't know. I guess I just enjoyed being a fan more than anything else. It's interesting because um, I kind of started doing that as well. I mean, we do podcasting and YouTube now as well, but I, I also got, you know, my start kind of doing well disc magazines at first, and then I made websites. And I think, you know, before the days that we could do online video, that was a good way of expressing yourself and actually getting an audience, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And uh, you'd build this fan website and then you would reach out to these other websites doing something similar. And you have like affiliate links, like check out this affiliate site and you would put like, I remember I was into anime as well and I would love these anime websites. It would just have like biographies of all the characters in the anime and just like random news about the anime. And it was just like a big hobbyist fan group back then. I mean, when you're a teenager, I think being part of that community was, was something fun, especially when it's about something you really like to do. And you had to have a, a web ring at the bottom of your website as well. I of remember course, that. the web ring, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so relatable. I think we're the same age and I was obsessed with Dragon Ball Z, so uh, probably in the, yeah. some of the same forums. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the show. So I, I read that you started in 2006 as Muck Frosticles, but you didn't become the gaming historian until 2009. Is there kind of a story there? Is that actually linked to the websites you were working with or anything? Or was it just a personal account? Yeah, so my I my YouTube account was created in 2006. Uh, it's, I think YouTube was like a year old. Um, and I was like, wow, look at this cool website. So I joined and it was just a personal account. Um, I, I, my username was Mick Frosticles. I can't even remember how that name came about. <laughs> People think it's like a dirty, perverted thing, but it, I swear it's not. Um, <laughs> I promise you. I think my brother gave it to me or something and i thought it was a cool name no but blame your brother <laughs> I'll, yeah I'll, I'll blame my brother on that one. um but yeah so it was just a personal account and i would watch videos and you know i came across angry video game nerd and i thought it was hilarious and it made me think back to um you know playing games growing up and the frustrations <laughs> that come with it and uh, i was also working at a video game store called gamestop i'm sure mm. You guys know or familiar yep. with GameStop. Yep. <laughs> uh, so I got, I got, I really got into collecting around this time because what would happen is customers would come in with these like tubs of of like Nintendo games or PlayStation One games or Genesis games, and they'd want to trade them in. But GameStop didn't take those games anymore at that point, and so we would just say, "Oh, we can't take them anymore." But I wasn't supposed to do this, but I would tell them, "Hey, meet me in the parking lot." in like 10 minutes and I will buy these games from you. Nice. Um, so that's how I kind of got into collecting. Cause I, I don't know when you're surrounded by video games at your job, it, you get more into it, I guess. But I was also in college and I was majoring in history because my, my plan was I wanted to be a history teacher. I wanted to be a high school history teacher. 
And so I guess it was just the combination of those two passions. I, I really loved studying history. I really was into video games and I just kind of wanted to know more about the origins of this thing I love so much. And that's kind of how the show came about. I guess I, I, there was, there were some programs that were doing this, like the, the channel G4 had a show called icons, which kind of went over like different histories of stuff like the Sega Dreamcast or how the Nintendo entertainment system launched and the, and they had interviews with the people that were actually there. And I thought, wow, this show's really good. I want to find more stuff like this. And there really wasn't much online as far as video content. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I'll try it. Well, how did you initially go about researching these games then? And do you remember like what kind of inspired you to change your channel to gaming historian and kind of make this a proper show? Well, I will fully admit I was 20 years old. I wasn't that great at doing research. <laughs> um, so it was a lot of just let me read this book or let me just Google search this thing and then I'll just write it in my own words and then that's the show. Um, so it was very basic research, but that really didn't exist back then as far as video content, you know? And actually, I should I should back up. Before I had the, the Game and Historian, I, I had another show that I just did with my friends for fun called Game Flop, and it was about working in a video game store because I was working at GameStop at the time. I just wanted to parody how the ridiculous things a game store clerk goes through day to day. And it was just something me and my friends did for fun. It was kind of a learning experience for me of like, how do you shoot video? How do you record audio? How do you edit video? And then I, I took it from there to creating the gaming historian. Yeah, I'm actually quite interested about your time working at GameStop because you see so many videos online um, of people who had, you know, an awful experience working there and, <laughs> you know, that it wasn't kind of what they hoped it would be. How did yep. you find it? Uh, very similar. Um, the, the company is really about numbers. They want you to sell magazine subscriptions. They want you to sell pre-orders for new games and they want you to push used games because that's that's really how they make their money they make money on selling used games they it's just like you know basic economics they they buy low they sell high so that's really where they make a lot of their money is on used games um i i loved the customers because they were you know they were passionate about video games i loved my coworkers. we were all passionate about video games it was just that that corporate overlord that looked looked over us, you know, that was the worst part of the job, I guess. So uh, you mentioned uh, AVGN earlier on, you know, being inspired by them and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, you've been on YouTube for a long time now, been the gaming historian for over a decade now. Was it kind of hard to stand out from the crowd with so many kind of like AVGN clones and stuff back then? Or did you find it was quite a smooth transition? Were you quite popular to begin with or did it take a while? I... I'm, I consider myself very lucky that I started this show so early because there really wasn't any competition. Um, there really wasn't anything out there. Uh, it was fairly easy to stand out from like the AVGN type shows just because my show is so different. I'm not trying to, it's not like a comedic edited comedy show. It's, I'm trying to do a, like a serious approach to uh, video game history. And I was really inspired by, not only AVGN because he was just one of the first to do this online, but uh, stuff outside of YouTube. So documentarians like uh, Ken Burns is, is my all time favorite. And um, 
I really, <laughs> you know, um, what do they say? Uh, copying is the sincerest form of flattery. So like, I definitely like take a lot of inspiration from Ken Burns on my stuff, but, uh, yeah, I, I do consider it lucky to, that I started so long ago because I think about starting a channel now, it's much harder. Uh, there's just so much more content these days. I also, the fact, you know, you've got a, a master's degree in history. Is that right? Not yet. I'm working on right. it. I, I, okay. am in, I am in graduate school. Um, I have my bachelor's in history currently. So how does like kind of doing video games differ from the kind of stuff you do academically then? I mean, is there any kind of crossover there? So there, there is a little bit of crossover. The, the biggest crossover is um, the tools you have for research. Um, they're very similar. And actually in the academic world, you have a lot more access to stuff. There's a lot of databases and uh, journals that you have access to when you're in the academic world that, you know, the public doesn't get access to really. As far as the topics, video game history in the academic world is, it's, uh, it's a very, very new thing. There's not a lot of people doing it. There's a, um, historian, her name is Lane Nooney. She is probably the premier academic historian for video games that I've been reading a lot lately, but yeah, it's, it's just a very different world. Academic history and what I do is they're very different. Do you, with your master's degree and stuff, you said you're still doing it. Are you using video games? Are you still, are you using that for your master's or are you doing something completely separate? Well, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I had, I had definitely have some ideas for what I want to do for my master's thesis. Um, I'm definitely exploring some video game topics, though. It's just such a new academic video game history is such a new kind of thing. And so it's kind of, you know, it's still being explored right now. But I I I think I would like to do it. I've got I've got an idea for something on the Oregon Trail that uh, I think would make a really good master's thesis. So we'll see. I think in many ways as well, we're quite fortunate that it is such a young industry. I mean, you know, we found doing this podcast that we can get many of the people that were involved in the early days of video games on the show. Whereas if you're doing like a cinema podcast, for example, you know, going back a hundred years, that of course wouldn't be possible. So I guess it has its advantages that it is quite a young industry. It does, especially when I'm, when I'm doing research for these videos, it's wonderful that I can, I find these names as I'm doing research and I make a list of all these names and then I look for ways I can get in touch with them. And it's great that I can just email them or send them a letter or call them and just say, you know, tell me about your experiences with this. And I'd say 90% of the time they're happy to talk about it. They're super excited that somebody is even interested in this stuff. So yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a wonderful time. Uh, to be exploring video game history. So your first ever video as the video game historian was for the NES Top Loader. What made you to start? What made you decide to start with that subject? Believe it or not, it was from watching the Angry Video Game. Nerd. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he would always use a top loader to play his games, and I would always. Well, one, I had never seen one before. Yeah, nor had I. Yeah, so I was like, "What? I didn't even know this was a thing." And a lot of the commenters felt the same way. They said, wow, what is this top loader? I've never seen this before. So I said, well, that would make a great first topic. Let's, let's, let's figure out what this is and why it exists. And that was my first topic. That's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of things like the SNES Junior and stuff like that I'd never heard of. Um, with a lot of yeah. things, obviously, you've covered on the show as well. So um, one of the oddwares you've covered is the Sega Pods. Um, tell us how that came about. How did you get your hands on them? And you know, what's your thoughts on them? 
Oh yeah, Sega Pods. The uh, it's basically a Simon clone, but it's it's fun. I came across it in a it was like a video game comic hobby shop in like right outside of Pittsburgh, and he had it behind the counter, and I I saw the bright red Sega packaging, you know that stands out. Uh, it was the North American packaging, and um. I said, what Sega? And I looked at it and I said, well, that's not a video game. That's not a video game console. It looks like a toy. And so I bought it because I just had never seen it before and played it and made a video on it. (laughs) It happens. It happens a lot. I'll stumble across something like what in the world is this? And I'll pick it up. And then a year later, I'll say, "Okay, I I think I'll finally make a video about this. So any others you've kind of just found in the wild, never heard of because you do cover a lot of things I've never heard of before. And I always find them really interesting. Uh, yeah, the, the hot seat, the, uh, it's like a, a chair controller for your Nintendo entertainment system. I have a, I have a friend, a local friend who collects video games and he found it on Craigslist. Some guy was selling it and I, he showed it to me and I said, can I borrow this? And he lets me borrow anything from his collection. He's, he's very generous. So he's always finding weird stuff and it's amazing a lot of some of this hardware that was like regional and you you think something for the Nintendo would be like a national product or even like a global product but you even had some things that were regional uh for, because it was just such a booming industry you could even make money even if you only sold it in a few states um but the the hot seat is a great one the Aladdin deck enhancer is another one that's something I saw at a convention that I had never seen before that is a a device for your Nintendo Entertainment System that uh, allowed you to play these proprietary games. It was put out by Comerica, and it promised like bigger, better games for your Nintendo Entertainment System. But uh, it, uh, I don't think it lived up to those expectations. It was made by um, uh, Codemasters, the same company that made the Game Genie. You know, kind of getting hold of these um, obscure items. Are you finding that it's more difficult as time goes on? So I don't know what it's like over there, but I know here, for example, a decade ago, I mean, I, I bought a Sega Dreamcast for like £20 and I got a Mega Drive even for like £25. And, you know, they go for hundreds now on sites like eBay and Gumtree. I mean, do you find that's kind of, is it get more difficult as time goes on as these things become more known? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I... I look back on the days of going to garage sales and antique stores and seeing Super Nintendo games as far as the eye can see for two dollars a piece. That doesn't exist anymore. It's it, I think GameStop parking have, lots. <laughs> GameStop parking <laughs> lots. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the well has dried up for for finding that stuff. Sometimes you can still find it, but it's a lot harder now. You're right. You know, actually, speaking of GameStop, I did see that they were kind of going down the route of um, making these kind of retro gaming cafes to try and drum up some more interest, obviously before COVID kind of hit. I mean, have you ever visited one of those? And do you, do you think that's a viable way to get people in? Or? I didn't even know this was a thing. <laughs> yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> retro gaming cafes. Yeah, we covered yeah, it on the show. Yeah, trying to turn the shops. Yeah, turn their stores into kind of having areas where you can play Super Nintendo and N64 uh-huh. and putting sofas in and that kind of thing. Gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, they're they they are really trying to diversify their um, their stores because of uh, the like the 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 video game store is almost becoming like not required anymore. 
uh, with all mm. the digital distribution going on. I mean, they're 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 doing like iPhone repair now. I think. I mean, they've really expanded. They're doing video game merchandise a lot more now. And you know, I think a few years ago is when they got back into retro games. Now they'll buy retro games again. Yeah. Or before they they said no more. You know, when I was working there anyway. Yeah, they had like a 10, 15 year period where they wouldn't accept anything mm-hmm. kind of which wasn't, you know, next gen, did that did they? So Yeah, and speak and speaking of uh the good old days, you could buy NES cartridges from GameStop for ninety nine cents each. <laughs> Wow! Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely yeah. miss those days. A big yeah, bin. If only you bought more. <laughs> <laughs> if you could only go back in time and buy them all. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Actually, so I mean, you, you must feel this as well as a collector. I mean, would you kind of mourn the day that there is no kind of real video game stores around? Because I don't. I know Joe. He's got a big collection of like Sega games in in his room, and you know, just having a digital download doesn't quite satisfy that that feeling. I don't think for many collectors. Yeah, it's it's not the same as being able to hold it in your hands, um, and and like play it on original hardware. There's 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 definitely a difference. It's like uh, you know, Sega has released their their 16 bit games on all the digital platforms. You know, you can play it on Steam, Xbox Live, PlayStation Store, everything, Nintendo Switch, the eShop, uh, but it. I've tried playing those games on like Steam and it's just not the same. I just, I've got to be in fr- on a couch holding a Sega Genesis controller. I have to be looking at, at the television straight on, you know, it, it's very different. So I, I agree. There's, there's something special about uh, playing it on the original hardware, but I will say for history and preservation purposes, it is wonderful that there are digital copies of all these games. I uh, 100% agree with what you're saying there, but I can guarantee when Sega released the Mega Drive Genesis collection for PS5, I'll probably buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I will probably do that too. (laughs) How many times? Game over and over many times. Exactly. (laughs) I I think I've bought Sonic the Hedgehog 1 and 2 about 50 times probably over the years. Yeah, so so much Streets of Rage for myself. Yeah. Um, So obviously you've covered so many different games, different game consoles, different subjects on the show. How do you decide what to cover next other than, you know, randomly finding these things in the wild? Is there any other sort of process behind that? So there's there's really two ways I go about it. It's um, one is I have a Patreon where supporters can um, donate and uh, support the show. And then in return, they get some cool rewards like I'll, I post a blog there once a week about what I'm working on um, or I will let the patrons get to watch videos early, uh, usually like a week early. Um, but one of the big perks is I let the patrons vote on episode topics. And so I'll present them with like three ideas of what I had and they'll choose which one I should make. Um, so that's a, that's a big help. The other thing is I don't, I try not to, um, make episodes based on what's trendy like you'll see a lot of youtube channels and it's smart they'll like if a game's anniversary is coming up they'll they'll make a video about it uh before the anniversary hits and that'll help get a lot of views for it which is a great idea it makes a lot of sense but i am uh i am i'm more about like i don't know what's interesting to me at the time um and right now i'm really obsessed with uh 1989 1990 uh, Nintendo Entertainment System era, 
it's it was I'm very fascinated by that era right now, and so I'm choosing a lot of topics from there. So like right now, I'm researching uh, the U Force controller from Bruderbund. And actually, I, I should probably talk to you guys about this because I found out it did come out in the UK, and I just Ryan. I just want to know if you guys had any experiences with this thing. I, I've never seen one in the. I've never seen one in person. Um, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> my, I've seen it on AVGN and stuff like that. But no, um, I didn't didn't know that at all. The thing is, growing up in the UK, Sega was quite you know the dominant. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 31 now. So the mega drive was just everywhere. You didn't really know many people who had a Nintendo like my uncle had one and that was it. Um, so, I mean, the, the super Nintendo was a, was a lot bigger. Like everybody had a super Nintendo when that came out, but seeing an NES, let alone an obscure accessory for it, was really rare, definitely for me. I don't know about you, Dan, because you're a couple of yeah, years old. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit older than Joe, but I think when when I was at school, you know, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, the NES, it wasn't that big. It was mainly home computers, you know, like Commodore 64s and Amigas and Atari STs and then Mega Drive and Super Nintendo after that. But yeah, the NES, I think I only ever met one kid who had one. It, it was, and you know, when I lived in Scotland, it was the same way. Now, everyone on the U.S. military base, they loved the Nintendo Entertainment System. But you go outside right. the military base and you go into the Scottish community or the uh, the British community, uh, it was more, way more Sega, uh, way more Mega Drive. Funny that, <laughs> how, how the tides have turned. So your episodes on Sega and Nintendo's biggest mistakes, they were really interesting videos. I mean, you cover stuff like, you know, the 32X and uh, both companies missing working with Sony. I mean, do you think Sony were underestimated originally by the video games industry before the PlayStation? Um, I, I believe so. I mean, when you have these two, uh, you know, monsters in the video game industry and Sony comes to them with this, with these ideas and they both, you know, fall apart. I definitely think they were underestimated. And I, I think it's brilliant that Sony said, okay, well, we'll just do it ourselves. And obviously it was a good idea because, you know, Sony is still around now. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I think the, the story about Sony and Nintendo is pretty, pretty well known. Um, but the, the idea that Sony went to Sega as well, I don't think that's as well known. And Tom Kalinske, the former president of Sega of America, he, he talked about it in an interview and he said, I really regret us not doing that because obviously look what happened. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, when the Sony PlayStation came out, it was it was it was pretty amazing. And I, I remember saving my money to buy one. I really wanted one. And then the, I think about the Sega Saturn and I don't I can't remember any of my friends that had one of those. So, I mean, it might seem obvious looking back. I mean, do you think if Sega didn't screw up the Saturn launch, their fortunes may have been different? Yeah, I think that was a, gosh, I, when I was researching that, I just couldn't believe. And I put, it was, it was the, the tension between Sega of Japan and Sega of America. It was just, it caused a lot of problems, obviously, because it resulted in that Sega Saturn launch. And it resulted in, you know, the 32X and all these add-ons for the Genesis. And I, I do I do think about if if maybe they kept doing the Genesis and they just went straight to the Dreamcast after that, I wonder if things maybe would have been different, but who knows? It's interesting because it's like the Super Nintendo, in the UK at least, was around for, you know, a couple more years when we had the Sega Saturn and stuff like that. So like you say, it is interesting if they just kind of held on to the, the Genesis Mega Drive, it may have been a lot different. 
Yeah. And I, I think about, I don't know a lot about the technical aspects of some of these consoles, but I do read a lot about how difficult it is to program for the Sega Saturn or, or emulate games for the Sega Saturn. And so I just think about developers back then making games for it. It must have been very difficult. So you also gave your thoughts on Sony's biggest mistakes. Do you think they overestimated themselves with the PS3 launch? Yeah, I think that was a lot of their ego. Um, I think the um, the the cell processor they used was was very complex. I think, um, gosh, I, this was around. You know, I was working in GameStop when, when this thing came out. Uh, it the games that came out around the launch of the PlayStation Three were it wasn't a great launch, and customers were really upset by it and. I think I think my biggest problem with Sony is their proprietary stuff, like with the memory cards. I, that just I can't stand it when a company does that. It's very infuriating that you have to buy a Sony memory card to use it on your Sony console. You know, like with the PlayStation Portable and the PlayStation Vita, that was just infuriating. Haven't they done something similar with the PS5 with the external storage? Or am I? I might be wrong there. That I'm not familiar with, but are they are they doing that as well? You have to buy I'm, a Sony hard drive for. I, I was going to say I, I could I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you know there's like an external terabyte thing, um, and there's the official you know Sony PS5 wing one. So yeah, here we go again. <laughs> we go again. Yeah, this is this is why you know we study history is to, to learn from the past, and uh, I guess Sony's not interested in learning from. The past. <laughs> Well, you cover, um, you know, failed hardware on your channel as well. And, you know, the more obscure side of it, like the, the Famicom disk system. I loved your video on that. Yeah. I mean, do you find the the stories of like failed machines or ones that never made it to market interesting? Yeah, I, I, I'm always curious about why something didn't work out. And I'm, I think my, my, the thing I find the most interesting is like the context of the time it came out. Um, so like with the power glove, it, Obviously, people love to say, oh, the power gloves, it's terrible, it's so bad. Uh, but I think about the context of when it came out where virtual reality was this new industry that was being created in the late 80s. And for a company to attempt to take this product that NASA was using and scale it down to something that a consumer could use, I think it was brilliant. And yeah, it didn't work great, but you got to appreciate the effort and the the forward thinking by these companies, you know? Has there been any episodes you wish you didn't start due to the lack of material online, just, you know, not being able to research it, and it just simply took months to get the episode together? Yeah, it happens a lot, unfortunately. Okay. You, you think of a topic and you're like, oh, this will be interesting. I'm going to look into this. And there's just like not a lot out there. But sometimes it works out. Um, so... For, as an example of something that I started and just gave up on, I wanted to do a video on the Ape Escape games. Oh, yeah. I, I love Ape Escape. It's one mm. of my favorite games, and I go to do research, and, man, there's just really not a lot you can talk about. Um, and so I had to shelve that one. And, you know, I don't want the video to just be like, here's the game, and here's what you do in the game. You know, that's that's not what I want my show to be about. I want to talk about, you know, the, the origins of yeah. the game and the developers that made it and how it did and how it's remembered. Um, so that one's on hold. I'm, I, I, I'll go back to it in the future, hopefully, but, uh, but sometimes it works out for the better. So for example, I did a video on Mario paint yeah. and um, 
the origins of that game and why Nintendo made it. And honestly, when I was started doing research, there really isn't a lot of uh, information about Mario Paint um, because there's really not much to it. It's a paint application uh, and music and basic animation. And so I really had to transform that video into, okay, this isn't a uh, broad historical overview of the game. I'm going to make this more about a, I'm going to make this more of a social history of Mario Paint. I want to talk about not only the game, but I want to talk about the kids that grew up playing this game and how it inspired them uh, when they grew up to get into a creative industry. And so I talked to a game developer, I talked to a filmmaker, and I talked to a musician uh, who all grew up playing Mario Paint, and they told me about how much of an inspiration it was to them to get into their careers. And so sometimes it's a blessing when when you can't find a lot of you know factual uh, research on a topic, but you know, history is about more than finding facts, right? It's about interpreting the past. So, well, talking about your collection, how big is your gaming collection, and uh, how do you uh, store it all? Yes, the <laughs> my collection is very small compared to oh, okay. compared to others. Um, I I have my collection has. If, if it were on a, a graph, it would be like rolling hills. You know, it would be very big and then it goes down and then it goes big and then it goes down. Uh, you know, some, a lot of the times when I add, what I add to my collection is I add stuff that I'm interested in that I want to make a video about. Um, I try to keep my collection minimal just because my house isn't super big. So I want to make sure, you know, I don't have a room overflowing with video games. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I I wish I had a bigger area so I could get more of this stuff but yeah I I really you know I just kind of display it on on some shelves I'm I'm really into outside of video games I really I'm really into like woodworking and home improvement stuff so I like to like make my own shelves for some of these oh, yeah. things so I had a tub of loose Game Boy cartridges and Game Gear games and I said, I really wish there was a better way for me to store these on a shelf instead of I just having a giant tub of them. And so I built a custom Game Boy Game Gear cartridge shelf and I like measured it exactly so the Game Boy and Game Gear game would fit perfectly in the shelf. And I painted it and I hung it on the wall and it works great. So I was going to say, uh, I think I've spotted that in the, uh, in the background of a couple of episodes. Yeah. So I and um yeah, that was another solution. It was a, um, it's like a nail polish display case. Oh, it's not okay. Meant for yeah. Video games. The My Life in Gaming guys, who I think you guys talked to a few episodes. Yeah, we did. Ago, yeah. 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 They, uh, they told me about it and they said, oh, yeah, it works great. So I, I yeah, I did buy one of those and I used that for a while. <laughs> but then, awesome. of course, my collection got bigger and I ran out of room on that. So I had to build my own shelf. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I, I do collecting is, it's addicting. It's very yeah. addictive. I'm I'm on like 700 games and I think oh my god that's so much and then you kind of put it on the shelves and it's like actually the reality of it is it's it fits in you know two bookshelves in a cupboard um, yeah. and, then, and then you get people like Metal Jesus Rocks you know he's got like 10,000 games or something yeah Jason, Jason has a massive collection yeah it's, <laughs> it's crazy very, it but you know it's it's almost a part of his personality mm. um, he's just so into it he loves it and uh, so of course yeah he's gonna collect a ton of games, but man, yeah, he's got, he's got so much stuff. 
Mm, definitely. Are there any uh, dream systems you know you want for your collection, collection, or anything kind of on the hit list to review? I have been wanting to make a video about the Apple Pippin for oh, wow. a yeah. long time, and yeah. I just need to find one. So that's that's on my hit list, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've played with those at expos and stuff before. Um, a curious system, the Pippin, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, I honestly. I haven't really researched much into it. I just, I see that Apple made a video game console and it was a a huge failure and I just want to know more about it. And I just, you know, my first step is always, I want to play with one first. Mm. So you're not missing much. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm guessing I'm not, but (laughs) I think the the curious aspect of it is about, you know, Apple are now like, you know, the biggest company in the world and you couldn't imagine them doing something that was such a flop, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And this was this came out in the '90s, right? The Apple Pippin. Yeah, yeah. So even like this, I feel like the '90s was sort of a downtime for Apple because that was you know in between their boom in the '70s and '80s with the Apple personal computers, and then they came back super strong in the 2000s with the iPod and stuff. So it's kind of a weird in between era of the, of Apple computers. So. Yeah, exactly. you're right there, because after Steve Jobs left, it was kind of the, you know, the wilderness years, wasn't it? But you don't really hear a lot about that era anymore. Yeah, they're kind of like, what do we do now? And I guess they mm. tried a video game console. So, And I think Bondi was involved with that, too. There, there's, a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of stuff going on with that. So, I look forward to that video when you get your hands on one. <laughs> yeah, I got an eBay alert. I uh, keep, keep on the lookout for them. We're kind of making your videos then. What's kind of the, talk us a bit through the process from the initial idea all the way up to release. I mean, I've read that you do everything yourself on your videos. Yeah, I, I pr- pretty much do everything myself. Yep. Um, I do have some friends that help me with like music and illustration work, but everything else I pretty much, I pretty much do. Uh, so it takes a long time. Um, I'm probably dumb for doing it all myself. I should probably <laughs> hire somebody or get some help with that, but. I don't know. I, I enjoyed the, I enjoy the whole process. So, uh, it's really when I come up with, with an idea for a topic, I spend as much time as possible doing research and gathering facts. And then I, I, um, I look at all the facts and I kind of interpret what's going on and you have to kind of, the, the biggest, the biggest step is you take all of these facts and you turn it into a, historical narrative because at the end of the day historians are telling a story and so that's the biggest part of of making the videos is telling a good story um and so once i have that uh written out i hand it over to my wife uh kristen who is a fantastic editor she uh edits all of my scripts because i'm not a great writer but she's a great editor uh, so she finds all of my goofs and grammar errors. You know, I'm really bad with passive voice. So I use a lot of passive voice, which is the sign of a writer who's not confident. And mm. uh, <laughs> and then it goes from there to production. So I do the narration and I edit the video in Adobe Premiere and then it comes out. And I, when I started doing this full time in 2015, I was like, I'm going to do a video every week. And that failed. And then I said, well, I'll do one every two weeks. And then that failed. And now finally, I'm of the mindset of I'm going to work on it until I think it's where I want it to be. And then I'll put it out. So I really try to take my time with these with these videos. 
I love the fact that you do that as well because you kind of go against kind of, you know, conventional YouTube wisdom here. Like, you know, you've got to put a video out every week, otherwise you won't get any views. And you prove that you can sometimes go a couple of months between releases and still have really popular videos. Yeah, it's very anti-YouTube, but um, I, I I really prefer doing it that way. I'm just I'm just way happier with the final product. And there's a, there's a few other channels that, that are starting to do that as well. Um, um, Ahoy. I'm not yeah. sure if you're familiar with Ahoy. He he puts out videos, you know, every few months, but every time he does, it's fantastic. It's a great video. And so you know he takes his time with it. And that's that's a guy that does everything himself too, Stuart. Uh, I think he writes his own music, which I'm like, this guy is super talented. To be able to write your own music is is incredible. I can't even imagine doing my own music for the video but yeah it's very anti-youtube to put out a video every few months but i do even if it has been a while i do try to find like a smaller topic i can just put out there like this past week i put out a video about the homework first lock that locked up the nintendo entertainment system and that wasn't a super big topic but i hadn't made a video in a while because i was you know going through grad school and it was very hectic and stressful so i was like well let me let me get this out and let people know I'm still alive, I guess. So <laughs> I, I put that out and that was, that was a fun topic to do, but I, my, yeah. what I really like to do is the longer episodes. The that's, those are my favorite. That's cool. I was going to say, it's uh, really interesting that Dan mentioned that because we were talking about that earlier on saying, you know, we do, there was no kind of rhyme or rhythm to your videos, but they're always really good and they're always good hits. And, you know, speaking of which, you know, you're on 800,000 subscribers now with, you know, just short of 100 million plays. Um, when did you kind of realize the channel was taking off? When did it start getting big? So, yeah, we I hit 800,000 subscribers in December. And honestly, I didn't know about it until my wife pointed it out to me. Um, so that was that was exciting to hit. Um, my personal goal has always been to hit a million subscribers. That was like the dream, I guess. Um, but I started the show full time back in 2015. I'd always wanted to work on it full time because before then it was just kind of a side project I did for fun uh, while I worked full time. And I thought, you know what? I'm young. I would love to try this full time. So I talked to my wife about it and we said, okay, let's save our money and then you can quit your job and we can try and see how it works. And so in 2015, I quit my job and um, started making the show more often. And that's, that's kind of when it took off. I hit a hundred thousand subscribers a few months later, and then it just kind of snowballed from there and the projects got bigger and the scope of what I wanted to do got bigger. And yeah, it's been a blessing. It's, it's been wonderful. I, I, I find that with a lot of YouTubers, um, He's a guy I've not watched in a while, but uh, IGT85, when he hit 50,000, he was like, right, I'm going full time. And that was a couple of years ago. And I'm sure I saw, you know, he's on like half a million now or something. So it's crazy how it just snowballs like that when all of a sudden you can kind of put that maximum effort into it. Um, you know, was that scary when you first kind of went full time with it? Yes, it was very scary um, because, you know, you're you release a video and you have to watch, I was watching it intensely uh, looking at the numbers because it's like, okay, how well this video does mm. determines, you know, how much money I'm going to make this month. So <laughs> what does Christmas scary. look like? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's when I launched the Patreon as well. Mm. Um, because I thought, well, you know, I can, 
people that really love the show can support me and I can give them cool behind the scenes stuff uh, in exchange. And that really helped as well. And uh, the way YouTube is now, um, without Patreon, I don't think I could do this full time today. Uh, Patreon, it really is a blessing uh, for making these videos full time because that not only do they give me ideas for videos or they watch one of the biggest benefits is they watch the videos early and then they can give me feedback early and they can say, Oh, I thought the music was too loud here or, Oh, you had an error uh, in this part and I can go back and fix it before it goes live to everybody else. And so Patreon has just been, it's been absolutely fantastic and vital to the show. And it's really increased the production of the show because with their support, I'm able to get research material uh, that I would never dream I could get before. Well, speaking of errors, you actually did a video a little while ago about facts that you got wrong. Yeah. Um, as we all know, I mean, you can't get anything wrong on YouTube. You'll always get pulled up on it. You're right. Um, I, love the, I love the fact that you went back and addressed that. I mean, what made you decide to do that video then? I had gotten a message from somebody who pointed out an error in um in a previous video and i went back and looked at it and i was like i can't believe i got that wrong like i can't believe i made that error and i i had i had just seen from previous experience other people that when somebody points out an error uh and you know like like you said you you can't be wrong on youtube and i i guess i wanted to change the perspective that yes we are not robots. I am a human being and I am prone to errors, um, especially when it comes to history. Uh, you know, new stuff comes out all the time with history and it's very common for historians to make errors. Uh, so I guess I just wanted to let people know that I'm human and I do make mistakes and I guess I wanted to poke fun at myself a little as well. So that's why I made that video. It was fun looking back at my early videos and just seeing like the production quality and like (laughs) what I was doing. And did you miss your long hair? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, uh, I love your videos on, um, real life stories, you know, like, you know, the history of the ESRB, you know, Nintendo versus video game rentals. Yeah. What kind of made you decide, you know, I've been reviewing games, I've been reviewing consoles, you know, let's now look at these real life subjects. What was, you know, what made you decide to do that? Um, I guess I, when you're, when you're looking at the history of video games, a lot of the time, the actual game is probably the least important part of the history. Um, and it's more about, uh, everything else going on. And I guess that's why I got into that. Um, and you read about these stories in video game in, in, in history regarding these video game companies. And you're like, wow, that's, that's fascinating. Like, the whole Nintendo going after Blockbuster is like, you know, Nintendo is very, um, they try to have this like innocence to them with, to the public. Like, oh, we're just this fun video game company. But man, when it comes to litigation, they are like on it. They will sue anybody. And so you look at them coming after Blockbuster for making copies of video game manuals uh, to give to their customers. I mean, they were cutthroat. They were very protective of their copyright. Uh, so I just, I just find that stuff fascinating, I guess. 
Have there ever been any, any examples that kind of spring to mind when you've been researching a topic and then you've just found out something incredible that you think, I wasn't aware of that and I really have to kind of go down that rabbit hole a bit more? I I guess a recent example would be with um, Mario Paint. And when I was researching Mario Paint, looking into, you know, how parents were kind of outraged about how Nintendo wasn't making all these educational games, like they were destroying the youth and corrupting their kids. And it really sent me into a rabbit hole of like, like I said, this era that I'm studying now is 1989, 1990 Nintendo. It sent me down this rabbit hole of like Nintendo is like peaking. It is like extremely popular. It's in one of four American households and like parents are kind of concerned about it. Mm. And so I've really gone down that rabbit hole of that era. And now I'm looking into like when the super Nintendo is announced and how parents are kind of, pissed off about the super nintendo they're like you mean i have to buy a whole new machine now you know and it's not backwards compatible with my nintendo entertainment system so yeah i the the whole culture around it and the 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 context is you definitely go down a rabbit hole of what's going on that's awesome and i do think that's an interesting era as well the the early 90s because it was such a big change wasn't it the kind of five first five years of the 90s in particular yeah and this is also when sega kind of says, oh, you know what, we're coming out with the Genesis Mega Drive and we're going we're gonna to go after Nintendo. And, you know, it started around then. So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting era of video games. It's a very popular era to study, but I, I'm just, I don't know, maybe it's because I grew up around then. I'm kind of fascinated by it, but it's also like kind of the, just the, the beginning of that rivalry of Nintendo and Sega and the, the boom of the industry. So um, our last question is, what's coming up? What's, you know, what, what episodes have you got coming out? What are you working on at the moment other than the, uh, obviously, the boom of the 90s? <laughs> uh, well, I did, I did tease a little bit. I'm, I'm working on something about the U-Force. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's my big topic right now. I did, um, last year, I went to the National Archives here in Kansas City, and I found court documents relating to when Universal sued Nintendo over Donkey Kong back in the early 80s. And these are documents that have, as far as I know, have never been scanned before. Yeah. And so I spent two weeks at the archives just scanning every document oh, wow. I could find from from this court case. And so I have these documents and I'm kind of going through them right now and trying to figure out what I'm going to do with them. So I do have that. And then I also interviewed the creators of the Oregon trail game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I have these interviews sitting on my computer that I need to figure out what to do. But like I said, I might turn that into my master's thesis. So yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll We'll see. see (laughs) But I can hit two birds with one stone there, releasing master's thesis as as a video as well. Dan, that is, that is exactly what I'm thinking of. <laughs> my mind. Yeah. So I, uh, but I do, um, I do want to assure everybody that I am always working on something. I know sometimes my videos take a while to come out, but I am always working on something for the, sh- for the channel. So it's exciting. Well, they're always worth the wait, Norman. And you know, your research is impeccable. And we, we're a massive fan of your channel. I mean, I'm sure all of our audience have probably watched you before, but if not, I'll put a link in our show notes to your channel. Um, keep up the good work. And thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Well, thank you so much for having me.